Well, good morning. It's so good to be able to share this message with you via WhatsApp. I trust that wherever you are this morning, you are healthy and well. And I do pray that God would use his word this morning to bring us hope and comfort in a very disordered world. This morning we're continuing with our sermon series through a section of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapters 8 to 10, which we've entitled When Jesus Confronts the World. Uh, We're scheduled today to look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 34, but actually I need to do something a, a little bit different this morning. In this passage, we have the beautiful story of Jairus's daughter, but Matthew has actually condensed the story in his gospel to make a particular point. Matthew links three miracle stories together in verses 14 to 34 to show that Jesus has power to heal the sick, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, and speech to the dumb. He's presenting Jesus as the son of David. It's a title that the blind men use of Jesus in this chapter. In other words, he's presenting Jesus as the Messiah, God's servant. Isaiah describes the Messiah in this way in Isaiah 35. Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Matthew is wanting to show us that Jesus is God himself, come to save his people. In Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist is in prison and depressed, he sends messengers to Jesus to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus says to these messengers, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus does the things that Scripture prophesied God's Messiah would do, which is incredibly encouraging to us. Reading the story of our salvation in Isaiah in detail, 700 years before it happened, is a real validation of Jesus' ministry. So, in order to make this point clear, Matthew shortens the story of Jairus' daughter to just eight verses, but Mark uses 22 verses in his longer account to tell us the story in a lot more detail. And so we're in the unusual position in our study through Matthew's Gospel today to be looking at Mark chapter 5 and verses 22 to 43. Uh, let me read it to you, or again, if you're with your family, you might like to get someone in the family to read it to all of you. Mark chapter 5 from verse 22 to 43. Then one of the synagogue rulers, named Jairus, came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. 
When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher any more? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was twelve years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. When I was about seven years old, I went to visit a friend and spent much of the afternoon on his bicycle. It was a beautiful summer's afternoon, and I thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to ride his bike all over his really big garden. At the end of the afternoon, my mom came to pick me up, and I rode the bicycle outside and onto the pavement. I wanted to show my mom how well I could ride. Now, my friend lived on a fairly steep road, at the bottom of which was a very busy main road, And I remember cycling a little way up the road and then turning around so that I could whiz past my mom, which I did. I remember shouting out, look at me, mom, look at me. But my cries of look at me, mom, quickly turned to cries of help me, mom. Because what I hadn't realized in all my cycling that afternoon was that my friend's bike didn't have any brakes, at least not any conventional ones. It had the type where you backpedal to stop, but I didn't know that. And to this day, I vividly remember hurtling down this pavement towards the main road at the bottom, shouting out, help, mom, help, while my mom, who was chatting to my friend's mother, absently shouted back, that's nice, dear. Let me leave the story there for a moment, and we'll pick up on me again at the end of the sermon. But the reason I tell that story is because I think life is a little bit like that summer's afternoon. We go along, merrily riding our bicycle with not a care in the world, and then suddenly we discover to our horror that we are no longer in control. We get the test results from our doctor, and they are positive. A family member dies. We get the divorce papers. 
we get retrenched, a close friend immigrates, or as in our case this morning, an international pandemic breaks out and we suddenly discover that we're not in control. Actually, we never were in control. It was always an illusion. But this week we've discovered it personally and painfully. Well, at the beginning of this passage, we're introduced to a man called Jairus who finds himself in a situation where he is no longer in control. Up until this point, life had been fairly good. His bicycle ride, as it were, had been going pretty well. He was the ruler of the local synagogue. He was respected in the community, invited to all the best dinner parties. People asked him for his advice and came to him for counsel. But now he finds himself in a situation over which he has no control whatsoever. His little girl is dying. Seems quite likely that this was Jairus's only child, and we infer that because when Jesus meets the family a little later on, it's only this man and his wife who are mentioned, no siblings. This little girl is the light of Jairus's life, and now she's dying. I've never been in that situation, but some of you have. And there is something particularly heart-wrenching about children dying. It's wrong. Children are not supposed to die. They're supposed to grow up and live and laugh and marry and have families and careers and in time bury their parents, not have their parents have to bury them. What does Jairus do with his insurmountable problem? Well, he goes to Jesus. And the contrast is quite glaring in these verses. Here you have Jairus, a respected religious leader, going along to Jesus, a carpenter and controversial itinerant preacher, falling at his feet and begging him for help. It would be a little bit like us driving past the university, driving past the large mediclinic and going out of town to a wooden hut with snakeskins on the fence. But Jairus is desperate because his little daughter is about to die. For weeks he's watched as she's grown worse and worse, till it reached the point where Jairus doesn't care about his image and social standing, or his respectability, or what it might look like to members of his congregation. He finds Jesus and throws himself at his feet and earnestly pleads with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her, so that she will be healed and live. This is faith. As we've seen a couple of times in our series, people go to Jesus because they believe that he is the right person to go to. He is the one who can do something about these things. And Mark tells us that without any further ado or discussion, Jesus sets off and follows Jairus with the disciples in tow, but also with a huge crowd of people pressing around Jesus, wanting to see him and to speak to him and to touch him. And within this crowd, there is one particular unnamed lady who longs just to be able to reach out and touch Jesus' clothes. If Jairus had to overcome the barrier of respectability in order to approach Jesus, then this lady had to overcome the barrier of shame. Mark tells us that she'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, she had a menstrual disorder, a continual flow of blood outside what would have been normal. 
And aside from the obvious pain and discomfort and embarrassment that this problem would have caused this lady, there was also some very real practical and social implications for her. According to the law in Leviticus 15, this lady was ceremonially unclean. That meant she couldn't take part in public worship at the temple or the synagogue. If she was married, she wouldn't have been able to have sexual relations with her husband. She wouldn't have been able to have children, which would have been grounds for divorce in those days. And if she wasn't married, it's highly unlikely that anyone would have wanted to marry her. Anything that she touched would have been unclean too. And so this woman lived in a permanent state of social distancing. People wouldn't have wanted to come near her. And all of this had gone on for 12 long years, and this lady is desperate. I love the way that Mark puts it in his gospel. He says in verse 26, She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. It's interesting that Luke, who was a doctor, doesn't mention that part in his gospel. And this lady approaches Jesus from behind. It's an interesting contrast. There you've got Jairus, the respectable religious leader out the front, and this lady, the social outcast, at the back. And she pushes her way through the crowd. The crowd probably opened up for her. They knew her. They knew she was unclean, and that if she touched them, they would be unclean. And she reaches Jesus and touches the edge of his cloak. This wasn't any ordinary touch. It was different from all the other bumps and knocks and touches that Jesus got in this crowd. This was the touch of faith. Like Jairus, this lady believes that Jesus can do something about her situation. Notice that this lady's approach to Jesus wasn't particularly orthodox. If anything, it was a little superstitious. If I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. She doesn't get this perfectly right, and her timing is atrocious because Jesus is already busy with another far more important case. But she reaches out to Jesus, and as Mark says, when she touched his robe, immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. This lady had planned now to simply slip away into the crowd, but Jesus stops and draws attention to what she has done. This, by the way, is not good medical practice. Any doctor or nurse knows the triage system, that you deal with the most serious case first and then come back to the less serious cases. If I were Jairus, I would have stood there with the tension mounting in my head and stomach, internally pleading, come on, come on, mentally urging Jesus to get a move on. Jesus asks the crowd, who touched my clothes? which, as the disciples point out, seems to be a rather silly question, given the number of people crowding against him. But Jesus keeps looking for who has touched him, until eventually this lady comes and falls at his feet in fear and blurts out the whole story. And Jesus does this, not in order to embarrass this lady, but rather as a witness to the crowd. He needs to clarify that it wasn't the touch that was somehow magical, but rather her faith and trust in him that was effective. And after the lady has given her testimony, Jesus confirms her healing with the words, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. She gets more than she bargained for, peace within herself.
and peace with God. Well, all of this delay does lead to the very thing that Jairus feared the most. Through the crowd, Jairus sees some men from his house moving towards them, and the look on their faces tells him their news even before they move him off to one side and whisper it to him. She's gone. There's nothing more you can do. Why bother the teacher anymore? Some of you have had a doctor walk down a corridor with that look on his face and heard those words. There's nothing more we can do. I've been with people when they've heard that kind of news. Sometimes I've even had to be the one that gives a family that news. It's a solemn moment. You have to be very careful about what you say and how you say it. You have to be sensitive in those moments. And yet look at what Jesus says to this man whose entire life has just fallen apart. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. That could sound awfully shallow or flippant unless Jesus truly were in complete control of the situation. Jesus continues on then to Jairus's house, and when he arrives there, it's very clear that a death has taken place. We read that there are people there who are crying and wailing, as only Middle Eastern people can cry and wail. Matthew tells us about the flute players. They would have been professional mourners who were there to conduct a funeral service in the correct manner. And Jesus says to this crowd, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Again, what kind of man can say this at a funeral service? Either Jesus was being extremely inconsiderate, or else he knew something that this crowd did not know. Of course, the crowd laugh at him. They know a dead body when they see one. Some of them are professional mourners. They know what a corpse looks like. They know that this little girl has gone past the point of no return. But Jesus puts this crowd out of the house and he takes the child's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the child was. It's interesting that in the Old Testament we read of two incidents of people being raised from the dead. Both Elijah and Elisha raised from the dead a widow's only son. When you read those accounts, though, you see Elijah and Elisha laying themselves on the bodies of these young men, crying out to God to bring them to life. But here Jesus doesn't cry out to God. In his own name and in his own authority, he simply takes the little girl by the hand and says to her, Little girl, literally little lamb, get up. And she does. And this dad and mom received back to themselves the daughter whom they thought was lost to them forever. It's a beautiful story and a very meaningful one for us at a time like this. But what does it mean practically for us today? Well, hopefully we've seen a couple of things already. We've seen that anyone can approach Jesus from Pastor Jairus to a lady who's been shunned and shamed for 12 years, from the person out in front to the littlest person at the back. Anyone can approach Jesus. You don't have to be intelligent or respectable or even religious. Anyone can reach out to him. And we can also say that when we come to Jesus, something always happens. Things don't necessarily happen in quite the way we expected, 
This lady, for example, hoped to be able to touch Jesus and disappear again quietly, but it didn't happen in quite that way. Equally, things don't happen in quite the time we expected either. Jairus was hoping that Jesus would get there before his daughter died, but Jesus didn't. Things might not happen in the minute or the manner we expect, but when we come to Jesus, things do happen. But aside from what we've already seen, I think this passage addresses four main themes. Firstly, there is the theme of identity. And we've seen this before in our series. Matthew and Mark and the other gospel writers are wanting us to look carefully at who Jesus is. The central question of Matthew chapters 8 to 10 is found in the disciples' words after Jesus has calmed the storm. They ask themselves, who is this man? Matthew has presented snapshot after snapshot and asked us to join the dots. Only God can calm the storm. Only God can heal leprosy. Only God has power over demons. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can raise the dead. So who then is Jesus? And the answer over time becomes inescapable. He is the Holy One of Israel. God come in the flesh. The question of Jesus' identity. Linked to the theme of identity, secondly, we have the theme of discipleship. If Jesus is God, then what is my response to him? It's interesting that both Jairus and this lady could be described as believers in God. They would have worshipped God, read the scriptures, in Jairus's case, taught the scriptures. They were followers of Yahweh. And yet in these verses we read how their general belief in God was transformed into specific trust in Jesus. On the night before he died, Jesus spoke to his disciples, the men who'd followed him for three years and seen everything he had said and done. And he urges a similar transfer on them. He says in John chapter 14, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And perhaps for someone this morning, you need to exchange your general belief in God to a complete personal trust in Jesus. Or perhaps for those of us who do know Jesus, we may simply need to remind ourselves again that we can fully rely on him and trust him because he is Lord and God. Thirdly, not only do we have identity and discipleship, but linked to discipleship, there is the theme of belief. To me this morning, as we are sat in our homes in what for us is an unprecedented situation in our world, watching as infection rates and death rates increase, there are no greater words for us to hear today than the words that Jesus speaks to Jairus in verse 36. Don't be afraid. Just believe. But what does it mean to believe? One of my favourite writers is an Episcopalian priest called Barbara Brown Taylor, and she writes this about Jesus's words here. Only believe what? That our prayers will be answered? That things will turn out the way we think they should? That we will get what we want? 
That's the way it seems to work in the stories. People call on Jesus and they get what they want. The storm stops, the demon departs, the little girl gets up and walks around. So naturally, we try to figure out what those people did right so that we can do it too, so that the same thing will happen to us. In another place, she writes, We spend a lot of time trying to figure out the formula. Surely there's a formula. Two parts prayer, three parts faith, one part good works. We comb the miracle stories to find out who did what right and who did what wrong so that we can learn from their experience. We imitate their virtues and avoid their faults in hopes of becoming irresistible to God. But that kind of thinking is actually just an acceptably religious way to try and stay in control. We want to be able to control God and get him to do what we think he should do in the situation. But let me quote Pastor Barbara one last time. This is important. She writes, Faith does not work miracles. God does. To concentrate on the strength of our own belief is to practice magic. To concentrate on the strength of God is to practice faith. This is not just semantics. This is the difference between believing our lives are in our own hands and believing they are in God's. So it's belief in a person, not faith in a particular outcome. Faith that God will do what is good and right, no matter what it might look like to us. And of course there is precedent for that. People looked at the cross of Jesus and thought it was the most dismal, depressing, unjust, unfair event imaginable. What was God doing? And yet we know now that at that moment, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. It's probably important to bear in mind that Jesus himself experienced what it's like to ask God for something and not be answered in the way we might want. It's a profound mystery, but remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And yet the cup wasn't taken away. Jesus went on to pray, Yet not my will, but your will be done. This morning, our trust is not in a miracle. Our trust is not in healing. Our trust is not in being saved from death, although, of course, we ask for and can ask for and should ask for all of those things. But our trust is in God, a God who will do what is good and right, no matter how it might appear to us. And finally, not only does this passage answer questions about identity and discipleship and faith, but it addresses the question of hope. Jesus introduces a very important concept in this little incident, uh, one that he'll use again when he raises Lazarus from the dead, and one that the Apostle Paul will pick up later on in his letters. I'm sure you noticed it. Jesus says to the wailing crowd in verse 39, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. One writer points out that when Jesus confronts our last great enemy, death itself, death is the loser. It's stripped of its power and reduced to sleep. But how can Jesus reduce death to sleep? 
Well, come with me to First Thessalonians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul writes to a congregation who've had some of their members die, and he uses this same image. He writes, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Like Jesus, Paul uses the word sleep to describe the death of a believer. But it's important to notice that Paul makes a clear distinction between the death of believers and the death of Jesus. He says that believers fall asleep, but he doesn't say that Jesus fell asleep. He says that Jesus died. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And the implication is that believers experience death as mere sleep because Jesus experienced death as death. Jairus's daughter experienced death as sleep because later Jesus would experience death as death. If you've attended any of the funerals I've conducted, you will have heard me tell this story. I hadn't realised until quite recently that it's actually a true story. Donald Gray Barnhouse was an American pastor in the 1950s, and his wife died of cancer, leaving him with three children, all under the age of 12. And on the day of the funeral, Donald and his family were driving to the service when a large truck passed them, casting a noticeable shadow across their car. And Donald turned to his oldest daughter, who was staring sadly out of the window, and he asked her, Tell me, sweetheart, would you rather be run over by that truck or its shadow? Looking curiously at her father, she replied, By the shadow, I guess. It can't hurt you. And speaking to all his children, Donald said, Your mother has not been overridden by death, but by the shadow of death. There is nothing to fear. You see, Jesus experienced the full truck of death, so that you and I need only experience the shadow of death, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. All of the horror of death, all of the punishment for sin, all of the God-forsakenness of death, Jesus took within himself. He took the full brunt of death, so that as believers, we merely have to taste death. Jairus' daughter experienced that before the cross, you and I experience this after the cross. In fact, all of the miracles in the gospel and all of the genuine miracles we see today are little glimpses of what God's final kingdom will look like. And the reality and the certainty of that coming kingdom are based on the death and resurrection of Jesus that we will celebrate in a couple of weeks' time. People in Jesus' day experienced healing and forgiveness and even resurrection before God's kingdom was inaugurated through Jesus' death and resurrection. And you and I experience healing and forgiveness before God's kingdom is consummated at Jesus' second coming. But all of those healings, both before the cross and before Jesus' second coming, are only partial and temporal and temporary. Jairus's daughter did eventually die, probably at a ripe old age with her children and grandchildren gathered around her, but she did die. 
Lazarus also died. People who experience Jesus' healing today will die. The greater and permanent miracle will take place when the times will have reached their fulfilment and all things in heaven and on earth are brought together under one head, even Christ, and there finally is no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Well, we've looked at a great deal of things this morning. Let me come back to where I left off in my own personal story. Remember I left off as I was barreling down the pavement, going faster and faster towards the main road at the bottom of the hill? What happened next? Well, fortunately, I believe that years before my birth, God had ordained a small bush to grow out of one of the neighbor's gardens and out onto the pavement. And before I reached certain death at the bottom of the road, I hit that bush, flew over the handlebars and landed in a crumpled heap on the pavement, dazed but at least alive. And I don't know why some children hit bushes and some hit trucks. I don't know why some people die from COVID-19 and others recover. What I do know, though, is that each and every one of us who knows and loves Jesus are one day going to die, to fall asleep and wake in his presence and spend eternity with him. It might happen next week because of the coronavirus. It might happen this afternoon because of a heart attack. It might be in 20 years' time in our sleep. But whenever that sure and certain event takes place, we can trust Jesus in life and in death because he lived and died and rose again out of love for us. Amen. <laughs>